0: Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid Conversations about Connecting and Communicating. In this episode, I get together with two wonderful actors I worked with on Broadway almost a quarter of a century ago. There were just the three of us in a beautiful and hilarious play called Art, written by Yasmina Reza. My two fellow actors were Victor Garber and Alfred Molina, and we had all been in countless productions on film, on television, and on the stage, but partly because of the unusual way we had of getting ready for each performance. Doing that play was a little life-changing for all of us. Do you realize that it's been 24 years since we were on the stage together?
2: No. My God.
1: It, it doesn't seem like a number that fits. <laughs> 24 years? That's inconceivable. It seems hard to believe, but it's still one of the highlights of my life.
2: Well, I think we all feel that way. Absolutely. It's quite extraordinary, you know, when you put all the years that we're together that we've been actors, you know, if you accumulate with the hundreds of years of experience... And it, it's it's uh, it's amazing how one play can absolutely just not just capture a, a an experience like the, the, the wonderful experience of doing the play, but also it captured a, a very clear in my mind. You know, to, to borrow the title of your podcast, Alan, it's it's a clear and vivid memory of a very very specific time, and the memory, even after twenty four years, is still as sharp as it was the, 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 the week after. It's amazing.
3: I woke up this morning thinking, what better thing could I be doing than this? <laughs> and that's a sad comment on my life.
1: <laughs> one of the things that made the, the play so important to me, one, one was it was such a wonderful play, another was that you were such wonderful partners on the stage. But then there was that thing we did yeah. every night before the show, it's not usual for actors to get together and talk together and laugh together for an hour before a performance. Very often, people want to be in
2: their own space. That's right. But what's interesting, though, is that, you know, all, all the jargon that we give ourselves as actors, talking about preparation, motivation, getting in, in, being in the moment and all that sort of thing, it's really just about getting in the mood. <laughs> yeah. That's really what it boils down to. That's such a good way to put it. And I think that's what we did. We would sometimes collect in the green room. Sometimes we'd be in each other's dressing rooms, depending on where we were. And I can remember we just would come in and we would bring, we would carry our day with us. And we'd start talking about, oh, I did this thing today. And, oh, I'm, you know, this this thing irritated me or that. I got a great phone call with so-and-so. And I remember one, one wonderful comment that you made, which I've stolen shamelessly Alan I think it was in an interview or so and you were talking about this this thing that we were doing this kind of process that we just fell into naturally where we would just get together for an hour before the show and just talk and then we would just carry that energy onto the stage and someone said well what what kind of things do you talk about and you Alan said well you know we talk about what happened during the day, and as soon as one of us starts getting sincere, the other two let him have it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of the main things we did was to make each other laugh by making fun of one another. Yeah.
3: But I I don't think that particular way of doing things would apply to many plays. I think that this play warranted that in a way that we, we instinctively knew that that was the best way for all of us to kind of be on the same level.
1: You may be right about that. I, I, a few years before we did our play together, I was in a Neil Simon play with uh, seven other actors. I, I had learned that there was an advantage to doing something like this when I was doing MASH, it was another great highlight in my life. And one of the reasons it was a highlight was because of this thing that we discovered by accident of just sitting around together, kidding one another. But I couldn't do it in the Neil Simon play because people, I I was shy about saying, why don't we sit down for an hour before the show and fool around? (laughs) You know, a lot of actors would take that the wrong way. So I would hang outside of dressing rooms and chat across the doorway, the threshold, until finally we we started to meet as a group in the basement of the theater theater. But were you, did you take to it right away, Victor?
3: No. As soon as you said, I think we should spend a lot of time together, I was like, leave me alone. I barely know you.
1: We're going to spend two hours together on the stage. What more do you want? (laughs) One of the things that we would talk about, aside from our day, do you remember this? We used to talk about the people who had come backstage (laughs) to see us after the show.
3: (laughs) Talk
2: about it is one way of putting it. Yeah, we sort of critiqued them. Yeah, did they do good backstage? You know, for my money, the best the best backstage was given by um, the late great Sidney Poitier. His he when he came to see the show, he didn't just come to see you, Alan, and he could have done, and he could have just been you know he could have just come to see you. But he actually made the pilgrimage up those stairs to the second floor to say hello to Victor and to the third floor to say hello to me. And I thought that was so classy. He was such a gentleman and and I remember thinking about that for weeks afterwards, you know, because there were there were I think there was one actor. I won't name any names, but I, but I remember you telling me, Alan, that there was one actor who came back quite well-known, who came backstage to see you and spent half an hour in your dressing room telling you how he would have played your part. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that, <laughs>
1: but it was—it's it, really—it's a hard thing. A lot of people don't realize that when you go backstage, no matter how experienced the actors are who you've just watched. It's like walking into a burn ward. Everybody is super sensitive. They've really opened themselves up during the performance. And you have to be careful what you say. You can't say we had very good seats. (laughs) Well
3: my favorite one is they come back and you you open the door and they say how are you?
1: How are you? (laughs) Well you tell me how was I You you got to say something positive. I uh, I figured out you got to say you were wonderful. You got to say you. You can't say it was wonderful.
3: And by the way, I don't understand why people have uh, take umbrage with that sort of thing. Well, you you can't just look a lie. I said yes, you can. You can lie. Of
1: course. Yeah. Right. You don't care whether it's real or not. I have a friend who says, what, are we under oath?
2: (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it really just down to kind of basic care and concern for each other's feelings? Yeah,
1: but a lot of people, a lot of people, even in the business sometimes, forget what it's like to be minutes away from having just done a performance. Yeah, you're You're a little raw.
3: I remember I was as vulnerable in the last thing I did as I was my whole life. Nothing really changed. I think the word is
2: needy. Needy, needy.
1: One of the things that was good about that experience for me was I very much liked the director, Matthew Warchus. I really loved working with him. And he told us so many times don't play the scene as if you know it's funny. Don't don't be don't be aware of what's funny in it. And that's something sort of basic about playing comedy. But he told us so many times in in such plain language that we, none of us really were rehearsing it as if we thought it was funny. And I had a shock on the first time we had an audience.
3: I
2: know
1: the the laughs just surprised the crap out of me.
2: Yeah. I always had the feeling that the audience were being taken by surprise as well. You know, that they, you know, they weren't quite sure, you know, settling into kind of, you know, Oh, it's going to be a nice little boulevard romp.
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The play got more and more serious as the evening went on, which was, was great.
3: The other thing that we, we need to really acknowledge, and I think it's been what we have in a way is that we were in, I think one of the best plays I've ever been in or seen, I, I think that that play—I I, mean—it's it's rare that I've seen a play or read a play that has affected me as as much as art did. And the the—and the, um, I think it's—you uh, know—I think I feel
2: completely blessed that we got to do it
1: together. I feel the same way. It was mysteriously yeah. good that play.
2: I agree. I felt exactly the same way.
1: When we were talking about Matthew Waters, the director, I was wondering, what do you both hope to get from a director? What do you expect from a director? What do you like best from a director?
2: Well, uh, I've I've always really appreciated when directors do a, do a kind of sleight of hand, which you know I know it's not easy to do, which is that they come completely prepared and with a very strong clear vision of what they want to achieve with the play but at the same time uh make you feel as if all the best ideas are yours
3: one of the things i notice when a play has been well directed is that you don't notice the direction
1: yeah that's right i don't like being asked to do things that i think are hateful but i tell you one of the problems i have is when i've got the the scene all wrong i think the scene is about something completely different from what the play needs or what the playwright meant. And sometimes I've only realized it after we finished shooting the scene in the movie, and I realized that the director knew, but didn't want to bother me with setting me straight because it was 180 degrees in the other direction. And I, and I really, I would really have welcomed it being set straight. There's that moment when you're acting with somebody and they leave the set for a minute and you realize they've gone to the director because they know something's wrong. Yeah,
2: that's uh, no that's uncomfortable. And nobody tells you what it is. I mean I've worked with directors who basically regard would regard their cast as just a group of unruly children and and behaves uh, and behaves accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> but Matthew and, and Matthew did something which no other director before or since actually has done, which was the way he would sit inside the acting space with us yeah do you remember that yes that's right and i loved that i loved it because it felt like it felt like in the process of the rehearsal with the three of us rehearsing we were in a sense in a conversation with a fourth person and it felt wonderful i really felt like he loved us
3: and loved what we were doing whether that was true or completely or not but that was that and that allowed us all to be ourselves and to really find it organically I don't use that word often but it, it really did because uh, I don't believe in it but uh, uh kidding <laughs> anybody watching um, but uh I don't know if he even was conscious of it but it was certainly allowed us to to find what we found and which was you know for all of us you know it was unique
1: one of the things I prize most in the director is is knowing that he or she is actually listening, is aware of what's going on, so not just mm. in the outside appearance of it, but, what, but can sort of see inside it. Yep. And and if I get the impression that they are, then I'll let them in more. Yeah. And then they can make any suggestion at all, no matter how wild it is.
2: Yeah, it seems to me communication is all about not just what what is said, but also the manner in which any of those messages are delivered. You know, and I think there's a there's a sensitivity that some directors have that I find I'm very appreciative of.
1: You know, I'm thinking the play that we're talking about, Art, is a play about three good friends. And one of the things that happened as a result of that is the three of us became good friends. And in a way, the play got inside us. Does, does that, Has that happened to you, playing a character where the character has leaked into your real life like... Like like Victor, you play Jesus in God spelled. Do you ever would would you ever like it if people would pray to you?
3: They often do, Alan. They still do. They're outside now. Um, no, you know i i've had I've had um, I've had very few experiences, but uh, but I have had some.
1: Well, I was thinking more of a, that psychological thing where the character is not you, but you get so familiar with the character that some parts of it starts to rub off on you when i was young if the character had the ability to do things that i couldn't do like command a group of people or something like that i, did, I just didn't have it in me to do that uh, after playing the part i'd find it easier to do like you're playing a lot of villains fred did, do you find that villainy some part of the villainy sneaks into your
2: personality uh it's not so much that the villain is sneaking in, but I do—I have noticed—and here's an interesting thing: because playing villains takes you so far away from your own sense of self, you know, you're doing things and enacting things that you know you just know are so miles away from you that. A, it kind of encourages you to kind of do a bit of scenery tuning. You? Oh yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you should try it, Victor. You should try it one day. Oh no, I, I, I have. <laughs> but also, what what playing playing bad guys? What it gave me wasn't so much license to be bad in any way, but it was to do with. It gave me a certain kind of a bit like your example, Alan. It gave me a certain confidence. And I think the confidence came from being recognized as playing these kind of, you know, extreme characters, which meant that all the focus was away from me. So all any of my own failings or self-awareness, any of my own kind of issues with myself weren't weren't in the spotlight. Do, do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, well, I think that's wonderful
1: that we can take, even when playing villains, take... The best part of it and incorporate it because it gives us a, a kind of a, a rehearsal space for better behavior. But what surprised me once was when I had written the movie with a part in it for myself, and he was kind of rough on other people. And maybe it was because I was afraid of getting into that part of it that I really thought a lot about that. And one time, a guy at a gas station left the cap off the tank of gas, and on the way home, it was spilling gasoline out of the car. And I, I got so angry. I went back and told him I wanted, I wanted the cap, and I wanted the. I started yelling at him. It was, it was really embarrassing. It was something was coming out of me that I didn't know was in there, but it was in the character that I had written.
2: Interesting. I think so
3: many things, you know, that we don't we 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 discover about ourselves is that there are more things that we realize are are in us that that we're we're somehow uh, embarrassed by or ashamed of or but that that we all we're all made up of so many more things than we understand or or want to admit and uh, I think that's one of the great things about being an actor and about 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 a play like art and the other thing that I think is what for me about art was I realized that it was really important to have a sense of levity and humor when, when in anything I'm a part of. And I do that in this TV show I'm working on now that where I, I, I say outrageous things just to make everybody laugh or so sometimes they don't, but, um, so, but, yeah. uh, but generally they do. And, and, but also what I realized was that some of the other, some of the people who were just starting out on the crew thought I was serious. So I, <laughs> when I say I'm not doing that again, you know, <laughs> they think it's that real. was enough, and they they and so people are. I realize now that some people are afraid of me, but um, it's, um but that's good too.
2: <laughs> I always think of uh, a great thing that Helen Mirren once said about laughter and jokes and what she termed as tales from the trenches. She talked about the way actors. We'll we'll tell each other stories of of our experiences, but she said it's kind of interesting that no decent actor story ever ends with the lines. <laughs> and then I got a great
1: <laughs> review. That's right. I can remember my reviews word for word from the first horrible review
2: I got. Well, she, but her, you know, and her point was that we we share these disasters. You know, we talk about things that went wrong. Jobs we never got, jobs we screwed up on, uh, uh, jobs that you know, jobs that screwed us. I mean, all kinds of disasters. We tell these stories, and we tell them. And this is her argument, and I totally agree with her. We tell them because they're like they're like a kind of psychic glue that binds us all together. It Mm. it 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 creates a kind of sense of family, a sense of of intimacy that we've all share. We all share these anxieties and these fears you know and and so we talk about i remember i remember one evening sharing we we all shared our worst reviews and 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 what was interesting was like like the characters in the play even that we were getting competitive about <laughs> it <was> like, like <laughs> mine is worse than yours <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah one of us would would tell us i'm disastrous reviews and say so, ah that's nothing wait wait till you hear mine <laughs> I, re- I
1: remember that When we come back from our break, Fred Molina and Victor Garber and I share our experiences with stage fright and with what can be the easiest thing about acting and the hardest, learning your lines. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One... The proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message, either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com clearandvivid. That's patreo dot clearandvivid. And thank you.
0: Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now, with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
1: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Victor Garber and Fred Molina. We had just begun talking about that very tricky process of really relating to the other actor. When I was doing uh, The Apple Tree, Barbara Harris and I were rehearsing a scene, and Mike Nichols was the director. And at the end of the scene, he said, you know, you kids are not relating to each other. You're saying your lines, you're acting your part, but you're not relating to the other person. So you, you think relating is the icing on the cake. It's the cake. Wow. Well, uh, yeah. And I uh, that has really stuck with me. And what we did in the dressing room before every show was to find the cake.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think if we hadn't – I mean, it, it just so happened that we all got on, which is lovely. But there's no but, – but there was no – there was no guarantee no. that that was going to happen i mean we could have been three very disparate people and we may not have achieved that kind of level of of relating you know and and i and i th- and I'm, I'm convinced that had we not the play and the, our production would not have been nearly as satisfying or as or as as as, as good as it was but talking about what we did it, it's just reminded me of something the, the, the experience of doing the play and us three, you know, ending up becoming friends and that friendship maintaining is not unique to us. Apparently, according to the director, Matthew, went through various iterations of the cast. That kept happening with all the different casts. Oh, isn't that
3: interesting? I didn't know
1: that.
2: So there might be, there, there may be some kind of alchemy in the play itself.
3: Without question. I, I, I completely believe that.
2: One of the things I was
1: aware of in the play, and I think we talked about this at the time, maybe we all shared this idea, that the play is about three close friends who from the, almost the first minute of the play find that their relationship is starting to frazzle, tear apart. And it seems somehow we had to show the friendship that we were losing we couldn't start from nowhere. We had to start from some real friendship that's threatened by the uh, the attitudes of the people in the play. And that was a hard thing to do because it, there weren't moments where the friendship showed. It was only where the friendship was lost. So there was like right. negative space we had to show.
3: Because mm-hmm. well, you can't act that.
1: No, you can't. You really can't. You kids know. like you can't you can't act relating. You can't act as if you're right. relating. You either were relating or you're a stooge.
3: Stooge?
2: Who are you calling a stooge? <laughs> if we're the three stooges, we did pretty good. We did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> All of us have spent time making movies and filming things long periods to not being on the stage during that time. Is it comfortable for you both to get back on the stage after you've been away for a few years?
2: I went back to do a play um, at the end of 19, beginning of 20, and we closed just before the lockdown. Uh, so we managed to get our, our run in. Um, and it was the first play that I'd done for nearly almost three years. And I was really looking forward to getting back to working on a play, I must admit. And and I was very fortunate that we had a, a wonderful cast and a very similar thing happened it, that happened with us. You know, there was a real sense of camaraderie and togetherness and, and mutual respect. And and it proved to me that, that there is something, you know, I remember Victor saying something to the effect of, you might remember this, Victor, when... Uh, you came in one day where you had a rather bad cold or something and, and you weren't feeling terribly good. And you, I remember you said something like, oh, I'll be fine. Don't worry. Dr. Theatre. Dr. Theatre will look after me or something like that.
3: That's an old one. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah and, and, and and I'd never heard that phrase before. Dr. Theatre. Dr. Theatre can will fix it. But it was so true. It was so true. <laughs> and And I think all of that is part of it's part of this contract that we enter with each other. When, when, you're, you know, when a disparate group of people come together to make a play or to create a, 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 you know, an evening in the theatre, let's put it that way, there's a contract we enter into, and it's about let's be as open and as generous and as kind and as welcoming to each other as we can be. And, you know, and I believe that that approach always pays off. That's my belief. That's
3: why That's why you have to check the cast list before you agree to do it. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, who,
1: who, who else is going to do this? What about you, Victor? Do you find coming back after a while is hard?
3: Yeah. What happened to me was, uh, it had been six years, I think, and I have no sense of time, so I'm kind of making this up. But it was, uh, it was a long time, and I went back, and, and uh, Bernadette and I did Hello, Dolly! together, Bernadette Peters, and I... Um, I, I do remember, the one thing I do remember so vividly, and my memory is spotty, um, is that the first, it, we were in the rehearsal room, the first day of, of, of and we were, and Jerry Zachs was directing it, and he was allowing us to start basically from scratch, because it was had been, you know, great acclaim, Bet uh, uh, Bette, Bette Medler and David I. Pierce had been, made it an enormous success, so it was uh, kind of scary to be going in. But I do remember this: that we were we started rehearsing, and I and I and I was thinking, "What is this this feeling?" I, I, I and and the feeling was, "Oh, this is where I belong. This is where I'm hmm. supposed to be." And I hadn't felt that since the last time I did a play. And it was you know, it's not that I don't love doing what I'm doing now, but there's nothing like it. And then I experienced stage fright for the really, for the first time, real stage fright. And I'm worried about if I, if I'm, if I do another play, that's what worries me now.
1: I had stage fright only once in my life. It is a
2: horrible thing. Have you ever had it, Fred? Uh, No, I've never had. uh, Well, it it depends. What's your definition of stage fright? And I'll tell you. Well, here's what happened to me. I was doing
1: Our Town in London And I was the stage manager, so my entire part was talking to the audience. And I had no other actor to feed me cues. I had to remember what the next part was from sheer memory. There was no no help from, you know, your partner. So I'm out there, and at a certain point, a voice in my head says, what makes you think you'll remember the next line? (laughs) And immediately, sweat started to pour down from my armpits. (laughs) And I came up with the line. And then the voice said, okay, you got that line. What makes you think you remember the next (laughs) one? Now there's a torrent of water coming down my side. And that went on for about 30 seconds. It was pure hell. That's terror.
2: Well, I did get a slight... um, Uh, worry when when I went um, I went back to London in 2018 Um, we revived um, John Logan's play Red Mm. because we'd never done it in the West End we did it off we did it in a small theater at the Donmar in London then we went straight to Broadway so we never had a West End run and so it felt a little bit like unfinished business so we went back to do it and it was you know really a wonderful experience you know working with another you know the, with another actor a new actor it was lovely the whole thing was great but there was a moment for about 2 weeks in the middle of the run where i got i guess was a, what i imagined was stage fright it, and what it was it was it happened at the same point in the play every night and i knew the line I knew what was coming up because it was a a big chunk that I'd really worked on. So I knew it was coming up, and I knew the cue. But for some reason, the voice in my head wasn't saying, what makes you think you know the next line? The voice in my head was saying, what the hell do you think you're doing here? Oh, God. (laughs) What are you doing
1: here? So the performance was affected
2: Yeah, it was like what, what, what? Why, you know, why are you wasting? And it wasn't like why am I wasting my time. It was like why are you wasting all these people's time? Why are you wasting everybody's time? And I think it affected me in the sense it made me work too hard. Mm. It made me kind of really struggle, really kind of. mm. So like any kind of emotional high point in the play, I was hitting it like like it was wet and like overacting. It, It was actually making me, I think, overact somewhat to the point where the director actually did come backstage one night and have a chat with me about it. And then he told me this story, you know, I mean, I think he probably told me just to make me feel better, but he told me this story about some really famous lord, you know, some famous sir in the British theatre who had gone through a similar thing. And uh, and he said, this is, you know, this has just happened. Olivier,
3: didn't Olivier get a developed stage fright late in his career?
2: Yeah, he did. The, the story goes that with Olivier, it lasted about seven years.
3: Yeah, well, that's what I'm
2: afraid and, of. I mean, unbelievable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is funny. It gets back to what we started talking about, that it seems like all we're doing up there is showing off. But in fact, we're going through such a roiling internal process that it's amazing we have the nerves to get up and do it. And once in a while, we lose the nerve.
3: Thanks, that's really helping. Out. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And
1: in fact, tomorrow, when you go back to work, you'll probably find it really impossible to do the thing. I'm going to say, I think I'm roiling. I think there's something roiling here. Can I have a royal break, please? <laughs> do you have special ways to learn your lines?
2: Well, the only thing I've done differently is I just start long a uh, way way more early than i used to yeah. me too on film and tv there was a time when i could learn my lines for the day just sitting in the makeup chair wow yeah i could just look at it and read through it through three times while i was in the chair and then i'd have it you know down yeah. can can't you do, do that, that
1: victor anymore. can you learn off a of page no i can't
2: I, I had one line
3: in a scene the other day and i walked in I couldn't remember the one line, and I'd gone, I'd already you done only it. You
1: had one line in the whole scene.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yes, I had one line, but that's what was scary to me, is that I thought, well, I'm, this is, on and toast, and I'm working now, um, two weeks ahead, that's the trick.
1: I find Dude. I can only learn by doing it. So on the stage, you get a chance to do it over and over and over again for weeks before there's an audience.
2: That's why we only come and see you at least six weeks after you've opened, Alan. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Don't you do it in your living room? Don't you get up and do it? I, that's what I do. I walk around the apartment saying the lines.
1: I do a version of that. I take out my iPhone. I put it on the record app. And I play all the parts in the scene, including my own, so that I can, I can play it back. And when it comes to my cue, I stop it. And I say my line, and then I start it again, and then I'm either corrected or confirmed in the line. That sounds like a nightmare. Oh, wait, wait. It, it's worse than that. It's worse because I have to distinguish between who's talking and who's listening. So I use cartoon voices. <laughs> Here's an example Give me all your money.
2: Oh, my God, he's got a gun. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? People pay hundreds of dollars for a masterclass like this. (laughs) Yeah.
0: This this has been so
2: helpful. Thank you. So helpful. Alan, all all you've got to do now is write your own reviews and you're the whole package.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think we're running out of time. Um, But we always end every show with seven quick questions. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. they're, They're not embarrassing, but they're generally to do with communication first question, what do you wish you really understood?
2: Technology. Huh. Yeah, I was going to say myself, but I think technology is, about, is actually more, more important. Absolutely. How do
1: you tell someone they have their facts wrong? With a smile.
3: Huh. Oh, I see it in another way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
3: Were you on my bowling league? <laughs> Wait a minute! Did somebody actually said, "Weren't you on my bowling league?" I said, "Have you seen Titanic?"
1: <laughs> oh, right. I, I knew you from Titanic. and thought you were in. The, I see. I didn't. I didn't make the
2: connection. What about you, Fred? I was once asked by a complete stranger who said, "Are we related?" This, this gentleman had asked me for an autograph and and for some advice for his child who wanted to be an actress and I sort of you know gave him you know a little bit of just a quick one sentence response and then he said are we related I I I would have chosen my words better I should have said I don't think so but I actually ended up saying oh I shouldn't think so
1: (laughs) (laughs) no chance how do you how do you stop a compulsive talker leave the room. You literally have you done that?
3: No, you say, "Oh, excuse me, I, and you, you see someone you think you know."
2: I've never been able to extricate myself from that sort of situation. I find myself kind of like a deer in the headlight.
1: Yeah. It's it's hard. Let's say you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you begin a real genuine conversation? I always ask them what they do and then my next question is always Tell me about it. So that wouldn't work if you were sitting next to the
2: president. Well, you could adjust it slightly and you could say, forgive me, but are we related? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Just get off yourself and ask them something and, and, and get them talking. Because once they ask me, I don't stop.
1: What gives you confidence?
3: I have to do a, a self-talk.
1: You, you talk yourself into being confident?
3: Well, I talk myself into saying... You've never failed at this. You've always done something, so you're, you, you can do this. You can yeah. do this.
2: That's a lot like yeah. my approach. How about you, Fred? I think it's the same. I think it's the same. I I I don't have confidence just there on tap. I, I've ne- I never have done. I, I I think I'm the same as Victor. I I have to kind of convince myself that I'm that I'm worth being in this moment somehow. It's very odd. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? The book that changed—I think it was some—I th- I can tell you what it was. It was um, a book by J.P. Don Levy, and it was called Fairy Tales of New York. I read it when I was in my mid-teens, and it's the story of of uh, this kind of—an um, American, young American man who was educated in Europe, comes back to America, and his his whole view of, of everything he took for granted has changed because of his experience in Europe. It made me realize that there was a much, much bigger and probably more enticing and exciting world way beyond my horizon, and it hmm. made me want to kind of try and find it. Great. I can still remember a line from the book what? when there's a character talking about this young man coming back. And he says, he's been telling us about the women over there. You don't have to marry them. They do it because they like it. <laughs> I, I remember that phrase. And you I recognize remember, the, yeah, a
1: whole new horizon
2: in that. I, a whole new horizon. <laughs> I realized that there was, there was a world beyond my school, beyond the, beyond the, the fence but around my school. Victor, what about you?
3: Well, uh, far cry from it's a well autobiography for yogi it was uh, it was just about a, the this this guru that uh, that had the, the philosophy and the belief system that i that
2: resonated for me and has uh, influenced my whole life you meditate don't you victor how long have you been doing it? if you don't mind me asking well my whole
3: life it's the only thing that gets me through in the the world we're living in right now honestly
1: This has been so much fun. I'm sorry we have to stop it now. But you guys are so great. I know you're busy. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show like this. It's just great.
2: Thank you for doing this, Alan. Oh, this has been great fun. This has been so much fun. And
1: uh, let's make a deal. Let's meet again in 24 years.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How about dinner in a few months? Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Victor. Sending love to all of you. you, Love you, (laughs) Freddie. Love you. Bye.
1: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. The play that Fred Molina, Victor Garber and I reminisced about is called Art. It was written originally in French by the playwright Yasmina Reza. Our production played on Broadway for 600 performances and it won a Tony for Best Play and the Best Actor nomination for Fred. Fred went on to play Tevye in a Broadway production of Fiddler on the Roof and his many film roles include Dr. Octopus in two Spider-Man movies. He's now in production on an Amazon Prime series premiering in December called Three Pines. Victor Garber's many movies include Godspell, Sleepless in Seattle, Titanic, and Argo. On stage, he starred with Bernadette Peters in Hello, Dolly! And on television, he played opposite Jennifer Garner for five seasons of the ABC series Alias. He's now starring in a Canadian series called Family Law. Due to premiere on the CW Network in the U.S. in October. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer Graham Ched with help from our associate producer Gene Chemay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Hene, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the amazing Francis Collins. Not only a brilliant scientist who headed the NIH for 13 years and is now acting science advisor to President Joe Biden, Francis Collins is that rarity among scientists and ardent believer. We'll talk about how he makes those two worlds meet. I think if you are like me, someone who sees the evidence that there was a creator behind this incredibly awesome, complicated, and beautiful universe, that if, as a scientist, you get to explore some of the details of that creation, and you learn something that nobody knew before, then you're getting a glimpse of God's mind. And that means that every scientific effort is also a form of worship, and the laboratory is like a cathedral in its own way. Francis Collins, scientist, leader, author, biker, rock musician, and Christian, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alden. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.
3: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less
0: with Treadwell
3: by Discount Tire.
0: I'm what you might call